Good morning. How's everybody doing? Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, my name's Carl. I am one of the ministers here on staff at the Parkway Church. I'm glad you guys are here with us. And I'm excited to, to talk to you this morning. We're going to be looking at uh, family discipleship. This topic has way more, like all of our topics, way more than one hour's worth of uh, of conversation to have about it. So I'm going to be moving very, very fast. I'm going to be covering a lot of stuff. Every single thing I say is going to be less than I want to say about that particular thing. But I'm hoping to pique your interest as we jump through a bunch of stuff really quickly, and maybe you'll have questions today as you do Q&A at the end, or maybe you'll want to get together later for coffee or lunch and talk more about this stuff. But let's pray, and then we will jump right into it. Father, we love you. We're thankful that you love us. It is by your grace and mercy that we can know you, that our hearts can be changed, that we can be counted among your people, that we can be adopted into your family, that we can be justified in spite of our wickedness, that Christ's blood atones for us. And so we're thankful. We pray that you'll help us to remember all these things. And as we think and talk about what it means to uh, do discipleship in the home, uh, we pray that you'll help us. Help us to think carefully and critically about these things. We might be encouraged and reminded that we have a good God, and you're for us and not against us. And so as we do this hard work of parenting and, and discipling one another in our homes, we pray that you'll be near to us. We love you. We thank you for your son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so what in the world is family discipleship? Well, first, I think it's helpful for us just to take a minute and just consider the word discipleship by itself, right? We talk about this word a lot. We use it a lot here. We say discipleship or making disciples, or we might use it like a verb and say we should be discipling one another or something like this. But what does that word really mean? Well, hopefully you already have some inkling of it. It's not some mystery word to you, but it does mean to teach and to train others in the truth of the gospel of the kingdom. Discipleship is something beyond just evangelism. Evangelism is sharing the good news of the kingdom in the hope that someone uh, will come to faith, that God will grant them the gift of faith. So discipleship of an unbeliever certainly begins with the work of evangelism, and therefore evangelism is indeed a component of discipleship, a necessary component to be certain. The gospel of the kingdom that's brought about through the life and death and resurrection of Christ is the foundation of a house that is to be built. And only God can lay that foundation. Salvation belongs to, to the Lord alone. But once that foundation's laid, discipleship is this work that we do to continue on beyond salvation in the teaching and the training of someone to, to understand what it really means to be a follower of Christ and how to live faithfully in the world. So this is uh, the framework of this house that's built upon that foundation of salvation. So once someone's heart has been changed, once their heart of stone has been removed and been replaced with a heart of flesh, they receive this beautiful gift of faith and the repentance for their sin that comes with it. This new heart desires to know, what now? What do I do? What's next? What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to behave? And discipleship is trying to answer those questions. It's pointing to the answers to those questions in God's word. It's dismantling the lies of the enemy that clouds someone's mind and then pointing them to the glorious truth of God's word on whatever issue it is that they're dealing with. It's not trying to be someone's conscience for them or somehow otherwise trying to play the part of the Holy Spirit. 
Discipleship is knowing that we are sinful and that we're bent towards sin, and so we've been charged by God to teach and remind each other of all that he's commanded. Now, some of that work, some of the work of discipleship is certainly done right here in this room on Sunday mornings when the people of God gather together, but the work of discipleship is primarily done within the context of personal relationships outside of here. Okay, so then what is family discipleship? It's the making of disciples within the relationships inside your home, in your family. So primarily, this looks like parents discipling children and husbands and wives discipling one another. Now, let's talk about each of those really quickly. First, parents discipling children. Well, this is an interesting circumstance because you're dealing with, at least at first, you're dealing with unbelievers, right? The work does have to begin with evangelism. But even before our kids come to faith, as we hope that they do, we spend a lot of these early formative years treating them in some way as if they're already a believer, teaching them the way that they should go. So we behave as if our kids are believers and have the expectations that they'll behave like that in spite of the fact that they don't yet have faith. And there's a couple of reasons for this. Number one, if you were to share the gospel with somebody that you're working with, a coworker or a friend or a neighbor, they have the freedom to stiff arm you and be like, hey, I'm good. You and your Jesus, I'm all set. Please don't talk to me about this anymore. And now you kind of don't have a whole lot of options to continue to talk because they don't want to do this. They just won't hang out with you anymore. But that's not true for your kids. Your kids are stuck. They're in the house. They have to listen to you. They have to obey you. And you can just tell them about the gospel all day. It doesn't matter if they like it or not. And second, there's a biblical reason, which is that we've been given a general command by God on our lives to make disciples, to go into the world, to teach people all that Christ has commanded, and to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. There's a general call on all Christians' lives to be disciple makers. But for parents, there is a specific call on your life to make disciples of particular people, your kids. You've been commanded by God specifically to make disciples of these particular people. And so therefore, you need to do the work of discipleship in spite of the fact that they haven't yet come to faith. So that's parents discipling kids, husbands and wives discipling one another. This idea of being mutually encouraged by one another's faith, iron sharpening iron, this kind of an idea. Husbands have a particular charge to disciple their wives, as we see in Ephesians 5, verses 25 to 27. If you're looking in your notes for all this, it's not there. This is all introductory material, pre-notes, pre-notes content. Ephesians 5, 25 to 27 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. So the command being given to husbands is to love their wives like Christ loved the church. And part of that is to wash her with the water of the word, which in part means to point her to and remind her of all that God has said because it is through the good news of the kingdom that she has been made clean and righteous, and by grace through faith in Christ. So God specifically commands husbands to participate in the sanctification of their wives through discipleship. But that does not mean that it's some sort of one-way street and that wives do not participate in the discipleship and sanctification of their husbands. This is certainly a part of what it means to be a help to your husband. I'm only pointing out here that husbands have a specific charge to disciple both their children and their wives. Now, 
a couple of words on this. I think it's important. I've seen this misapplied a lot by husbands who will take this to mean that you need to sit your wife down and teach her, just like you might your kids. I'm the guy with the answers. She's the person with the questions. I'm the teacher. She's the student. And that's what my authority in my home looks like. And that might be a reasonable conclusion to come to if it weren't for the Bible, right? (laughs) What else does the Bible have to say to you, husband? Well, it tells you in Ephesians that you are to nourish and cherish your wife as Christ does the church. Is it nourishing and cherishing to be patronizing to your wife and treat her like an elementary student? I think we might agree that it is not. It also tells you, husbands, in 1 Peter, that you are to live with your wife in an understanding way, and that you are to honor her as the weaker vessel. Now, living with her in an understanding way means that you need to seek to truly understand her. You do not attempt to conform her to your image, but rather you observe how God has formed her in his image, and you respond accordingly. This idea of being a weaker vessel kind of helps helps us understand a little bit of what it means to understand our wives, because what weaker weaker vessel means is not that she's somehow worse or less than you, but rather that she is more delicate, she is more breakable. She is to be cared for gently. So if you have a set of fancy china in your home, my family just inherited the the Brower china, and so china is on my brain these days. But if you have china in your home, you don't put it in the dishwasher, although that's exactly what my father did. We won't talk about that. But rather, you hand wash it, and then you dry it with a baby kitten, right? (laughs) You take really, really good care of this china, and you do do that because it's, like, worse, because it's not as good. No, you do it because it's better, because it's more valuable. It's the better stuff than your everyday plates, and so you're gentle with it because it means more to you. This is what it means to treat your wife as the weaker vessel, And then, wives, the scriptures are clear to you as well. You are to joyfully submit to your husband, even if he doesn't nail it, right? If he is a little bit patronizing, or you just don't like his approach, you're still commanded to submit yourself to him. First Peter says that you're to do this even if he is disobedient to the scriptures. So it isn't, I'll submit to my husband as long as he leads me just like he's supposed to, or just like I like. No, it's harder than that. It's harder work than that. It's a clear command that you are to submit to him even if he's disobedient to God's word in the hope that he would be won over to faithfulness by your conduct. So, if these things are true, then discipleship between a husband and a wife is different. It's less like a classroom as it might be at times with your children, and it's more like a loving and joyful conversation between two equals about the beauty and the mystery of God, rather than consistently looking for sin to point out in your spouse, what you do is you're looking for Christ in your spouse. And when you find him, you point it out so that your spouse may be encouraged in the Lord. It's reading the scriptures together. It's asking each other's questions and trying to explore those answers together. It's talking together about the strategies of discipleship that you're going to have with your kids so that you can be unified for that work ahead. It's reading the scriptures, it's confession and repentance, it's praying together. And who is responsible for getting the ball rolling in that regard? The husband. Husbands, that's your job to get that going. If it's not happening, it's because you're not doing it. 
So being responsible for pursuing these things, but also doing it in a way that has you walking to obedience in all that God has called you to as a husband, not just exercising authority. There's much more to discipling and loving your wife than just being the authority. So with that groundwork in place, let's talk about family discipleship. So we're going to be spending the bulk of our time thinking about discipleship of children specifically, but the principles that I'm going to be talking about and sharing with you this morning are applicable to any relationship in which there's discipleship taking place, including between a husband and a wife. So we're going to begin with some fun alliteration. Your notes begin with something that I'm calling a framework for discipleship, and it's just these three words, create, capture, and commemorate. Isn't that clever? So clever. So let's take a look at each of these three words briefly, and then we'll dig into them in greater detail. The first one is create. This is the proactive part of discipleship, planning specific times to consider things, the things of God together as a family. It's being mutually encouraged by one another's faith and spending intentional time together for the purpose of understanding God and his word so that we might look more like Christ. That's create. The second one is capture. I think this first sentence might be missing in your notes, but I'm going to say it anyway, and that is that this is the reactive part of discipleship. So create is a proactive thing that you do, and then capture is something that you react to the the daily life that you live. So this is being faithful to observe the people in your home and find opportunities to encourage them toward faithfulness in the everyday, everyday happenings of life. It's walking in the park with your daughter, and she notices a flower that she thinks is beautiful, And you leverage that to remind her, who made that flower? Who made it beautiful? Who created those colors? Who gave you an eye to see them and recognize them and find them to be beautiful? God did. It's waking up your teenage son who's running late for football practice that's early in the morning and doesn't want to go. And you tell him, hey, listen, you said you'd be there. And you need to make your yes your yes because that honors the Lord. It's hearing your spouse talk about something painful in their lives and then empathizing with them while you remind them that God is near to the brokenhearted. It's also taking the time to leverage every moment of discipline that you have with your children in order to point them to the glory of the gospel. It's all those things and everything else in between as well. The idea of capture here is you being faithful to observe the people in your home and find opportunities to encourage them toward faithfulness in the everyday. Now, for clarity, I'm not going to say anything else about discipline of children this morning. What I just said is the only thing I'm saying. And that's not because discipline of children is not an important thing to talk about. It's a very important thing to talk about. It's a humongous piece of the discipleship of children. It's such an important piece that we devoted an entire week to it, and that'll be next week. So we're not going to talk about discipline today, but we're going to talk about the other areas of discipleship of kiddos. So create, capture, and the third one is commemorate. This is an act of remembrance. It's pointing out and remembering God's faithfulness in our past in order to encourage us and remind us to put hope in his faithfulness in the future. So we're going to talk about each one of those three things in a little bit more detail, but first I want to show you where I got this from. This isn't some clever thing that I just made up on my own because I'm super smart or something, because I'm not super smart. What I did is I read God's word. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. If you're a parent and you've ever thought about parenting at all, this verse has come up for sure. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. 
You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So it's from this text that I get these three words. Because when you read this, and it's, it's, a, it's one of the most helpful texts that we can look at to show us what, is it, what, is it, what are we meant to do in the discipleship of our children. And essentially what he's saying is, all the time. Talk about the things of God all the time. But he does give some specific contexts. He says, when you're sitting in your house, when you guys are together as a family, talk about these things. When you're out and about, walking around, talk about these things. When you're getting up in the morning, talk about these things. When you're going to bed at night, talk about these things, right? This is the idea of this, this idea of create, when you're together in the house and you're dedicating time to spending with the Lord and then capturing when you're out and about, running around, when you're getting up, when you're lying down. And then commemorating, he says, bind them on your hands, Let them be on the the frontlets between your eyes, which are these weird little boxes they used to keep Scripture in. We can talk about that later. You should write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. He wants you to put up, play things that would have you remember what God has done. So create, capture, and commemorate. I think that kind of encapsulates what is being taught about making disciples in your home. So Let's dig into a little more detail. This first one is create, right? This is that proactive time that's set aside for considering the things of God together as a family. Most people think of this as devotions, family devotions. And that's great. You can think of it that way. At the end of the day, it should be some sort of intentional planned time that you have devoted to the Lord with your family. If you have kids, you're already doing something like this, even if you're not doing family devotions. You're already dedicating some time to teaching your kids about stuff that you find valuable. If you have kids, do you teach them the ABCs? Of course you do, right? You get the ABC book, you get the ABC blocks, you sing the song, you're always pointing to them. What's this one? B, my kid is the most smart kid that's ever been born. What's this one? Z, look how smart he is. Those are the only two you have out. Yeah, but he's real smart, okay? You teach them the ABCs because you know it's valuable. Them learning how to read and write and then be able to communicate and interact with people, that's necessary and valuable, so you teach them the ABCs. When they get to be about two or so, you teach them how to use the potty on their own because you don't want to change diapers forever, right? And that's needed and valuable. Being able to use the bathroom on your own is a valuable, necessary thing. So you teach your kid how to do it and you spend time on it and you dedicate time to it. Sometimes people are like, we're doing the 18-hour method. I'm taking the next two days off from work and we're going to crush this potty training. Let's do this, right? So you dedicate time to it. In a similar way, you should dedicate time to the Lord. So children learn... By example, they don't just learn by you talking to them. They also learn by observing you, right? I'll give you an example. The previous church where I worked, we had a really big preschool ministry, and we built this new building, and every preschool room was required to have the standard ADA door handle, which is the door handle that sticks out like this. You grab it, you turn it 90 degrees, and you can open the door. That was necessary. Now, guess who can do that? Every single preschooler that can walk. One-year-olds are like... So if I went out of the room, what do I do? Let's grab this, turn it. Oh, I'm out of here, right? And so one-year-olds were escaping left and right all day. And so I finally convinced the fire marshal to let me put in these little old-school locks, like you put in your screen door and you're back in, going out to the backyard. It goes up, over, and down, right? And that worked real, real good for like two weeks until the one-year-olds were like, ah, that handle's not working. What are they doing? Up, over, down. Cool, cool, cool. So up, over, down. I'm out of here, right? And so they just observed it, and they learned it. And that's the way your kids learn. Hopefully, you already believe that spending time with your kids, spending time with your family, and talking about the things of God is valuable. 
But the way that you demonstrate your value, the way that your kids learn whether you actually think it's valuable is how you spend your time. Ask a kid what their parents value the most. Most kids will tell you whatever it is that their parents do the most. So a little bitty kid will tell you daddy loves work because daddy's gone at work all the time. As that kid gets older, they realize, oh, dad doesn't necessarily love his work, but he does it because it's necessary to to provide for us and protect us. What he really loves is mommy, or what he really loves is me, or what he really loves is football. He's observing what his parents do. And so the way that you spend your time matters. The point is this, Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And to continue that logic, where your heart is, that's where you'll spend your time. This is intrinsic knowledge that your kids have about you. So what would your kids say if I asked them, what is mom and dad's favorite thing? What do they love the most? So we're supposed to be teaching a child the way that he should go, but lots of kids, older kids, leave the church all the time. Why? A lot of times because they haven't come to faith and they don't love Jesus. But a lot of times because they thought they did, but then they kind of got to look behind the curtain and they saw what they believed to be a facade They said, man, church is just a bunch of hypocrites. This is lame. I don't want to be here. Some of you have that testimony. You grew up in the church. You observed a bunch of hypocrisy, and you're like, I'm out of here. And then later, the Lord rescued you. How do we prevent our kids from having that testimony? We invest time. We disciple them. We talk to them about the things of God. We help them to see how things actually are. That me being a hypocrite is not evidence that the scriptures are false or that Christ is not Lord. It's evidence that I'm a sinner, and I will always be a sinner. I'm a broken person, and I will disobey God. But because of Christ's life and death and resurrection, I have life and am accounted righteous before God. Teaching our kids these things help hinder that hypocrisy issue later. So that's what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be creating time, but a lot of times it doesn't happen. Some families, it doesn't happen at all, and everybody's fine with that. Some Christian families want to be doing it, but don't do it. And there's some reasons why. Why don't we do it? Well, there's lots of reasons, but I would say that there's a couple that are the most prevalent in my experience. One is fear, and the other is just being lazy or desiring comfort. Fear, being afraid of things like, I don't think I know the scriptures well enough to explain them to my kids. I'm worried my kids are going to ask me questions I don't know the answers to. I don't feel like I'm really equipped for this. I don't want to mess this up. It's so important. It's so valuable. So I just won't do it at all. And that way, at least I'm not messing it up. My contention to you is that's the only way to mess it up, is to not do it. And so if you're, if you're fearful because you don't feel like you are equipped, you don't have the answers, let me give you an answer that always works and is always faithful. You ready for it? I don't know. That's an acceptable answer. If your kid asks you a question about the Bible or about God or about Jesus or about the Holy Spirit or about how things work and you don't know, then that's the answer. I don't know. That's okay because the, the answer is available. You can acquire it and you can learn as you get that information and then relay it back to your kids. That helps them to learn that their hope should not be in you but in Christ, in the, in the, the Lord and his word. Feeling like you're not equipped is a false understanding of what equipping is. The way that God equips you to be faithful in your role as a parent, as a disciple maker in general, is he gives you two things that you need. Number one, the scriptures. Number two, the Holy Spirit. The end. That's all you need. You do not need a seminary degree. You do not need all of the uh, equipping classes that we've ever taught, memorized. You don't need none of that. 
You need the Bible and you need the Spirit. And if you're a believer, you have both. And so you are equipped for this work. You're not expected to be a seminary professor. You're just expected to talk to your kids and your family about God and his word. And then the second one is laziness, just seeking comfort, right? I've been busy this week. It's just not going to work. We can't do it. It's not going to happen this week. It's fine. Ah, man, you know, I didn't really prepare anything for family time this week, and so uh, it would be unfaithful for me to wing it, so let's just not do it. Or maybe you just don't even think about it. You're so busy with life, you just completely forgot this is a thing, and you just, it's kind of an afterthought. So if that's you, if you walk in fear of these things, if you're lazy, if you seek comfort rather than faithfulness, my encouragement to you parents is repent. Just repent and move forward. Don't look backwards at all the days you didn't do it. But say, this is something I need to be doing, I need to be faithful, and I want to move forward and do it. Let me tell you how many times I have repented to the Lord and then tried to get that going again in my house, about 100,000 times. I've been really faithful about it a few times. I've been mostly unfaithful with it. But I repent and I keep moving forward. I continue to try to make disciples of my family. So, next thing on your notes, what should we be doing? Well, you should be having a planned time together with the family to consider the things of God. Now, everything I've said up till now, just about, and everything I'm about to say is descriptive, not prescriptive. I'm going to tell you some things I think would be helpful, okay? But this is not the way you should do it, right? God has not commanded you to disciple your family just like this. So don't walk away from today's teaching feeling discouraged, especially if you are indeed already doing something and it's way different than whatever I'm about to describe. If that's the case, great, keep doing it. You do not need to conform to my vision of family discipleship. I'm just trying to give you helpful tools if you don't already have them. This is not some sort of everybody's house needs to look like the Catlin house or the Hollis house or the Jones's house. This is not a one-size-fits-all, right? Okay, so this should be an organized time where we gather together as a family. And I think that there are three elements that are helpful to consider when planning this. Number one is time in the word. Number two is time in song. Number three is time in prayer. Doesn't sound very surprising or shocking or new because it's not. But here's the thing. It doesn't always have to be all three of those things every time. But if you never look at the scriptures together, if you never pray together, if you never sing together, you might be missing something really valuable. Now, additional elements can be added, certainly, right? As your kids come to faith, confession and repentance is certainly a valuable piece of the puzzle to be adding to y'all's regular time together. So let's look at each of of these three things quickly. Time in the Word. This is literally just you reading the Bible. It could be you reading a, a kid's Bible, a Jesus storybook Bible, or a gospel storybook Bible, or some other kid's Bible that you like. This could be you reading from the full text of the, of the scriptures that you have. This could be you utilizing some of the resources that we provide for you in preschool and elementary. We send your kids home with these little take-home sheets that tell you what we taught them, and with preschool, give you a couple questions on how you can interact with your kids about that content. You could use those. You could use catechisms. A catechism, if you don't already know, is a method of teaching that has a prescripted question and a prescripted answer that, that get paired together. I say this question, I say this answer. I say this question, I say this answer. And we memorize them together in order to learn some of the basic doctrines of the faith. If you want to use a catechism and you have no idea what to use, shoot me an email. I'm happy to send you some recommendations. Most of the good ones were written by Presbyterians, which means when you get to the questions and answers about baptism, they're going to have a different position than we do. So you'll need to alter those questions and answers, but that's okay. 
So reading the Bible. The point here is read the Word, okay? It could be you reading it. You could be having your kids read it. And then perhaps discussing what you've read or not. Time in the Word. Second, time in song. You can sing along with the CD. Nobody uses CDs. Uh, The weird box in your pocket that has magic songs on it, right? Use that. Plug it into your stereo. Play it on speaker, whatever. You can sing along with a song that's already pre-recorded. You could sing a cappella, which means with no instruments and no recording, just your voices. You could do that. You you could sing a song that you know. If you don't know the lyrics, you can look them up online. If you don't know any real songs or you feel like you can't carry a tune, you can sing something with your little kids. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. Right? You can sing that with your kids. You can sing any of the songs that worship God in spirit and in truth. If you have instruments in your house and you know how to play them, great, use them. You want to sing four-part harmony because you're super musically gifted? Great, do it. The scriptures command us to sing to the Lord. He wants a joyful noise. He doesn't necessarily want an in-tune noise or a beautiful noise. Any worship of his name in truth is beautiful to him. So you could just put a song on that you haven't heard before and listen to it and then discuss the lyrics together. But somehow or another, using song, using singing in the time that you spend with your family is valuable. And then time in prayer. Teaching your kids how to pray is valuable. There's a method that I think is helpful. Some of you probably heard of it before. It's called the ACTS method, A-C-T-S, like the book of the Bible. It's an acronym. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. The A, adoration, which means to praise. So you're praying to God in ways that just say to him, you are good, you are great. I'm grateful that you are a good God. C is confession. It's confessing your sin in prayer to God as you've been commanded to do. T is thanksgiving, thanking God for the things that he's done that are merciful and gracious to you. And S would be supplication, which is like a request, asking God for help. I'm wrestling with this. I'm fearful. I'm anxious. Someone in my family is sick. I'm, I'm struggling to believe what your word says about you. Help me. Teaching your kids how to pray. A few other thoughts besides these three things. Asking your kids regular questions is valuable. And it doesn't, it doesn't even have to be during your little family devotion time. It can simply be, hey, what's God teaching you this week? What are you learning? What's going on as you study God's word? Obviously, you can't ask your four-year-old that because he's like, I don't, I don't do that until you bring me in here and make me do it. But if you have older kids, you can ask them these things. One of the things we do in our elementary ministry really often when we have your kids in there is we do something we just call high and low. Asking your kid, hey, what's the greatest, most encouraging, most exciting thing happening to you right now in your life? And what's the most frustrating, difficult, or sad thing that's happening in your life? Because those are two places that we can turn to prayer. We can thank God for something that's great and exciting and joyful. And we can ask him for help when things are tough. Next thing in your notes is how long should it last? Well, as long as it's helpful, given the dynamics of your home. And you need to have realistic expectations for this. If you have little bitty kids, they're going to make it chaotic. And it might make it necessary for you to cut it shorter than you hoped. You're hoping for a half an hour and you got seven minutes. Okay, that's fair. They're going to stop doing that. They're going to get older. It's going to be okay. Okay? It doesn't have to be the most organized and attentive event in the world. It's not a classroom that you're trying to create. You're just wanting to have a regularity of gathering together with a family and talking about the things of God. If your expectation is unrealistic and what you think you're going to get is four kids sitting on the couch, hands in their lap, yes, Father, every time you say something, well, you're going to be super disappointed and frustrated because that's not how it's going to go. 
Two of your kids are going to halfway listen, and one of the kids is going to run around the couch without listening and perhaps yelling, and the other one's like, I think I pooped. I think I pooped. And you're like, oh, i got to change the diaper now. Like, it's very difficult. Okay, the, the, the point is this. Do not let the difficulty of younger kids make any excuse to not do it at all. Persevere through those younger years. And when your kids are old enough to actually sit still and actually interact and actually participate in what you're trying to do, they will already know this is what we do. This is the rhythm of our family. We get, we've been getting together like this since as long as I can remember, and now it's actually a thing I'm participating in. But it's not something new. It's been happening my whole life. And so I encourage you to, to persevere even when the little kids make it tough. Next thing in your notes, how often should this happen? Regularly. Hmm. How very unhelpful. And the reason I put regularly is because you get to pick. All right? There's no prescription. Daily? Sure. Weekly? Okay. Monthly? Great. Just do it. Just do it on some regular basis. Okay? If you miss it, do it next time. If you miss it again, do it next time. Okay? Don't give up just because you can't keep the schedule that you gave yourself. Okay? Your kids need to know that you value this. It's the only time that they see you thinking and talking about the things of God, if that's the truth for them. If they observe that this, is, this gathering time is the only time that you're talking about this stuff, then they're going to make judgments about how much you actually value it. Do you actually talk about the things of God at the dinner table? Do you talk to them about the things of God while they're getting ready for school? Do you talk to them about the things of God when they're getting ready for bed? Those things should be happening as well. But there is this time where you're creating this time to spend time with the family, to focus on the things of God. So it should just be regularly. Who should be leading it when you do this? The parents. Ultimately, the father is responsible for the discipleship of his children, but that doesn't mean he has to be the one that personally implements every single thing that he and his wife have discussed. And they should discuss it. There should not be something where one spouse is shocked and surprised by what we're talking about at family discipleship time. Right? Even if it's a two-minute conversation before you start, you should both be on the same page and be unified about what we're doing when we gather together. Okay, so that's create. Next is capture. Again, this is the reactive part of discipleship, but it isn't always an overtly spiritual endeavor. There are indeed these moments where you're pointing out the glory of God in a flower that your daughter saw at the park, but there are also a thousand other places where you can capture the moments of training your child in the very mundane and normal parts of life. So let's run through a quick handful of these. The first category is responsibilities, chores, Community is something that we want to be training our children in because that's the way the people of God live. The people of God live in community. And so serving one another is a part of that. Chores should be introduced to kids at an early age, but they should be age-appropriate chores, right? You can't have your three-year-old doing laundry yet. They can't reach the buttons. They don't know what whites and darks are. They're, gonna, they're, gonna really, they're probably going to climb in there. You should, probably shouldn't do it, Okay. But there are chores they can do. And so if you're like, I don't know how to give kids. I have a list of age-appropriate chores for every age. If you want that, email me and I'll send it to you. Okay? Money and allowance. Teaching children how to deal with money effectively and faithfully is an important part of discipleship. We want to be good stewards of what God gives us. We need to learn how to manage money. We need to learn how to be generous with money. We need to learn how to be not controlled by money. Right? We need to learn how to understand the difference between wants and needs. Right? You can give them an allowance. 
you could potentially connect that to the chores that they do and say, once the chores are done, you get an allowance, they learn how work and payment go, or you can have chores be a thing you do for no payment because that's part of being a part of this family, and allowance is a thing I'm just going to give you so that you can learn how to deal with money. Great. Either one of those things is fine. But teaching them how using money and interacting with money and being generous with money and giving things away is a part of what God's people do. Next is schoolwork and projects. Responsibility is what we're talking about here. Remember, when we're thinking about responsibilities of kids, it's important to think long-term, not short-term. Not just get in there and get your homework done so you don't fail, you don't make me look bad. But rather, this is a responsibility that you've been given, and you need to now steward it well to the glory of God. Do everything you do to the glory of God, including that speech that you have to do in English class next Thursday. You don't want to do it. You're procrastinating. Don't do that. Be faithful. Get in there and do the work. Okay, devices and the internet, right? Screen time limitations. Almost all of us think about this or talk about this with our kids at some point. Teaching your children that managing screen time should not just be some method of punishment or reward that helps you to, to get the kinds of behaviors out of your kids that you want, but rather it's an opportunity to teach your kids self-control. How can you learn to not be mastered by these things with screens on them that are so enticing? How can you learn to not have me withholding it from you, but you learning to withhold it from yourself so that you can focus on what is most valuable? So monitoring and restricting internet access is certainly something that we need to do to help our kids uh, flee from temptation because the internet is an amazing and wonderful place and also a terrible and awful and wicked place. And so how do we manage both of those things at the same time? Well, we have to restrict some of what's happening on the internet access, especially when the kids are younger. So if you do not know how to do this, and you're thinking, I would love to restrict the content of what's coming into my home on the internet, I have no idea how. Don't sweat it. We have 100,000 super nerds here at Parkway, one of which is me, and I'm happy to help you to figure out how to control the internet stuff at your house. But be aware, parents, if you give your kids a phone and that phone is a smartphone, which means it can access the internet, that is a completely different method of connecting to the internet than just your Wi-Fi at the house. And so even if you protect your Wi-Fi, they can still do crazy things on a phone with a cellular connection. So that needs to be monitored and protected as well. If you don't know how to do any of that, great, ask. We're happy to help you, okay? The next section here is conversations. I have conversations on here because Conversation, interaction, understanding one another, that is the foundation of all relationships, including discipleship. So we need to be teaching our kids how to have conversations. That's the way God interacts with us. He has given us his word and communicated to us, and he's given us the vehicle of prayer to communicate to him. Communication, conversation is a part of relationship. It's foundational. So first, we as parents need to demonstrate the value of conversation by spending time on it. That's how you demonstrate value, parents. And this is super easy when your kids are little, right? When your kids are little, as soon as they learn how to talk, they're asking you 1.7 trillion questions a day. Why is the sky blue? Why is that tree tall? How come those leaves are brown and those leaves are green? How come that bunny is jumping across the yard? Why is there grass so long? Does daddy not mow the grass? Like, just ongoing, nobody asked that at my house, by the way. I'm on my grass every 48 hours. If you want to talk about that, let me know. I promise it's not idolatrous. Okay? So talking to your kids when they're little is no big deal. They're constantly talking. 
But once your kids become school-aged, things change. Much, if not most, of their time is spent talking about and doing schoolwork. But there's something else that's more valuable that needs to be invested in, the actual relationships between the family members. And this only comes through conversation. So find time to actually talk with your children that isn't necessarily about school. You spend a lot of your time, and you should, telling your kids what they should be thinking and how they should be feeling because that's valuable and necessary to do so. But what else is super valuable and demonstrates that there's a genuine care for this relationship is asking you, what do you think? How do you feel? I want to know those things. I don't want to just download information to you and expect you to act like me. I want to tell you what's true, I want to tell you what's right, and then I want to hear from you. How do you feel about that? What are you thinking? Those are important questions to ask your kids to demonstrate that you care about what they're dealing with. Keep in mind, that idea starts with your spouse. Your kids will know if you're being super genuine and interacting with them and then being really snarky with your spouse and you're not talking to your spouse and you're not interacting with your spouse. Your kids know. Anytime I've given my wife the cold shoulder because I'm angry and feeling bitter or whatever, my kids know what's up. And when I try to talk really nicely to them, they're like, hmm, mm-hmm, faker. They know, okay? So these things start with your spouse. Next on the conversations list here is being general versus being specific with your questions. Demonstrate that you know what's going on in your kids' lives by asking specific questions. This is the difference between saying, hey, how was your day? And saying, hey, how was that quiz in history class you were studying for last night? Those are different questions that are looking for the same information. One demonstrates, hey, I'm acknowledging your presence. And the other demonstrates, hey, I know what's going on in your life and I care about it. So asking specific questions rather than general questions helps to demonstrate the value of relationship that you have with your kids. And as you teach them those things, they're learning how to have value in other people's relationships. Next on the list is respect and honor. We, are, we have been called by God to be outdoing one another in honor. That means that we need to honor our children as well. How are they going to learn what honoring someone looks like? How, if you're going to demand that your kids honor you, how do they know how to do that unless you're honoring them and they get to see it? So you make eye contact with them when you talk so that they'll make eye contact with you. What's the first thing you do when you get home from work or you get home from a long day of doing stuff out? Do you come home and immediately zip on the TV? Do you turn the stereo on? Do you get on your phone? Do you just lay in the recliner and be like, ooh, what a day? Or do you go to the people in your house that you love and speak to them? And say, hey, it's good to see you. How are you? What's going on? How was that history test? Hey, did you get to see your friend like you were hoping to today? Have conversations to demonstrate respect and honor. And then listen to your kids actively. Listen to what they say. And then ask them follow-up questions so that you can better understand what they're telling you. Even if your kid is three and they're telling you a ridiculous story about a snail that they spent 20 minutes with on the back porch and it was amazing, and here's what it did, and on and on and on. They want to tell you a 25-minute story about a snail, and you're like, it's a waste of my time, kid. I don't even know what you're trying to do right now. Well, the difficulty is what your kid is talking about is something they care about. It's something that matters to them today. It doesn't matter to you. Snails are dumb, okay? I step on, I don't care. Snail. That's the way I feel about snails all the time. I'm like, mm, let me find a snail. I'm just kidding. I don't know why I said that. Maybe think about that a little bit. But your kid is telling you a story about something that they care about. 
And they're coming to you because they have a relationship with you. And they're asking, do you care about this relationship? Do you care about what I care about? And if your answer is no, I don't. That's enough. That's enough, Bobby. I get it. I get it. The snail. Okay, okay. Right? If you dismiss your kids when they're young and they're talking about things that you find frivolous, but they do not, then later in life, when they have something that is not frivolous and matters, guess who they're not going to come and talk to about that? The person who showed them, they don't care. You. So listen to the story about the snail. Interact. Ask questions. Care about what they care about so that when they care about things that matter more, they'll believe that you're with them. Next one is no media, no distractions. When you're talking to people, hopefully you already know this, you're grown-ups. <laughs> we'll see. I struggle with this, so I'm guessing you struggle with this. Put your phone away. If you're talking to your kids, if you're talking to your spouse, don't grab your phone and look at it 16 times. I've done this a million times, and my wife is like, hey, hey, um, so are you going to, are we going to, are we going to talk? Are you going to, I'm like, oh, yeah, sorry. I'm sorry. I don't know what I was thinking. Anyway, what were you saying? <laughs> right? We all do this. Don't do it to your kids. It demonstrates that you care when you are not distracted by media, and it helps them to see that exercising self-control in the areas of screens and devices and things is helpful and valuable and demonstrates love and care. Next thing on here is age-appropriate conversations. The two that I've listed here are marriage and sex. We tend to stop, we, we tend to delay talking to our kids about marriage and sex. I understand delaying sex because it's creepy and weird and gross and you don't want to and you're fearful and blah, 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 blah. We'll talk about that in a second. But marriage, it's never too early to talk to kids about marriage. Marriage is a beautiful gift from God where man and woman come together and devote their lives to each other forever and create a family to honor the Lord and to raise children. That's a good thing to talk about. Don't, don't not talk to your kids about that. The reason you don't talk about, don't talk about marriage is because sex comes with it. And you don't want to talk to your kids about sex. This is not a subject that we should shy away from, but we do, and we delay it. And we say to ourselves, ah, my kid's not quite ready yet. I won't tell them. Ah, my kid's not quite ready yet. I'm not going to talk about it yet. Ah, they're not quite there yet. They're not ready. But you know what? You know who does not shy away from telling your kids about sex? The world. The world has a lot to say about sex, and their voice is very loud. Okay? So God, not the world, needs to be the first word in your kid's ear on this subject. God's word and what he says about sex and how it's supposed to be should be the first thing your kids learn about this. They need to hear the truth before they hear the lies. So you need to get in there and tell them what's up, even though it's creepy, even though it's gross, even though it's embarrassing, even though nobody told you. You found out from friends. You found out from movies. And then later you read the Bible and you're like, oh man, what? That's how it's supposed to be? Crazy. Okay? So I'm not going to tell you that there's some particular magic age that you need to talk to your kids about sex because there isn't. Some kids can handle it young, younger. Some kids need to wait until they're a little older, and that's okay. Developmental things are different. Nobody knows them better than you. You know when to talk to them about this stuff. However, I will say this. If your kid reaches age 10 and you haven't done it yet, you're probably, you probably have lost the opportunity to be the first word. They have already heard something from the Internet, from a movie, from a friend, something. And so I would encourage you to try to do it before age 10. And what I mean by that is three things, and I put it in your notes. Talking about the biology, 
How does sex work? The actual physical gross act of describing it to your kids. Yikes. And talking to them about what God has to say about it. It is a beautiful gift from God that for a married couple, a man and a woman, are supposed to indulge in as much as they want because it is a glorious gift from God. And in every other context, it is wrong and sinful and an aberration against God. In all other forms, it is sinful. That's important for them to know. And then you need to talk to them as well about what the world is going to say about it because the world's going to say a lot of stuff. And for your kids to be equipped with the truth of what it is, how it is supposed to be, and how the world thinks it's supposed to be, that's important information for them to have. And I encourage you to do it. If you're like, I, okay, I want to, no idea how to do that, shoot me an email. I'm happy to talk to you about it. Next on your list is how to handle relationships. Discipleship includes teaching our kids, teaching people how to handle relationships, both inside and outside of their home. Inside your home, your kids do not have enemies. And you need to tell them that because they will think of their siblings as enemies on occasion. And they are wrong. There are no enemies in your house. Your siblings are your best friends. No, he's not. He always takes my stuff. I know, but he's your best friend and you need to treat him that way. There are no favorites in our home. We don't love one child over another. But there are different roles for kids to play. That does not mean every kid needs to be equal in every way. It just means I don't overtly say, you know what? Taylor's my favorite. Catherine, you're cool. But man, Taylor, he's pretty sharp. Right? That's not great. But that doesn't mean it's not okay for me to bring a gift home for Catherine and give Taylor nothing. That's okay. That doesn't mean that on... On one kid's birthday, everybody gets a present. It doesn't have to be that way. That's not what treating kids equally means. It means loving them the way that you're meant to love them, regardless of how you feel about them. Okay, we don't love one child over another. But the eldest child typically will have more responsibilities than the younger kids, and that's just the way it is. That's what you get for being firstborn. So we share responsibilities in the house. You don't get to say, that's not my job. I didn't make that mess. Nope, we work together here. Let's let's pick this up. Let's fix this. When there's conflict in the home, we work through it together with repentance and forgiveness being the main goals. And then outside the home, we show honor and respect to others. We should love our neighbor like the scriptures command. For kids that are believers, they should know that evangelism should be a part of their relationships outside the home. They have an obligation, if they love and trust in Christ, to share Christ with others, even if that means some sort of social ostracization. Next on your list, how is time prioritized in your home? Remember, we demonstrate value by how we invest our time. If you're doing eight hours a week of select soccer or baseball or something like that, and then you can't make it to youth, and you have to skip community group pretty often, and sometimes you're not here on Sunday mornings because of it, you might be demonstrating to your kids, hey, listen, the things of God are important, but you know what's more important? Baseball. You don't maybe, you don't maybe intend to teach them that, but that is what you're teaching them because the way you spend your time demonstrates value, whether you mean for it to or not. Next, rest. Do you have it? Are you a family that's always going? Do you follow Jesus' example by drawing away from the busy demands of life and to rest? Do you retreat from those things in order to be near to God? Or is it missing from your life altogether? Are you just going, 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 going? Or are you actually resting? And are you teaching your children to do the same because it's valuable? 
Some questions that I've given you here to ask yourself to help discern whether or not an activity that you're considering for your family is worthy of pursuing. Does it inhibit rest or does it inhibit worship? If so, you might want to reconsider. Does it interrupt family dinners on a regular basis? Are you able as a family to come together and sit at the table and eat a meal at the end of a day? It doesn't have to be every single day. But is that a regular occurrence in your home or no? Are we all just running around doing 40,000 different things and we never sit together? You might want to reconsider if it's, if it's tearing that up. Does it sabotage bedtime for kids that really need genuine rest? If you know that your kid needs to be in bed by 8 or 8.30 in order for them to be successful and rested and ready for the next day, but you're doing stuff that causes them to be out until 9.30 or 10 every day, you might want to reconsider those things. Does the activity that I'm thinking about pull our family apart or does it draw us together? Because it is possible to get into an activity that we do as a family and that we do that together and it actually binds us together and it it bolsters those relationships. We had a family here at the church that had a bunch of kids and they all did basketball, all of them. And they did it together and it knit their family together. It didn't pull them apart. It was a good thing. So these are the kinds of things you should be considering about how are you managing time with your family so that you can demonstrate the value of relationship, that you're discipling your kids toward thinking about things correctly. The last one is commemorate. This is the shortest of the three because it is the simplest. One of the things that we see God's people doing throughout the scriptures is purposefully remembering significant moments where God has been faithful. God wants his people to mark these occasions where God has been faithful to rescue and redeem them, right? Think of Joshua stacking the 12 stones in the Jordan. Think of the celebration of Passover when God rescued his people out of Egypt. God commanded them to remember these things and to do things to remember them. Okay, we can do similar things in our families. To some degree, we already do, although we might not be leveraging it for for the best purposes. Most of us celebrate birthdays and anniversaries. I imagine almost everyone in this room, to some degree or another, remembers birthdays and anniversaries, right? Husbands are like, I forgot our anniversary this year, but I'll try to remember next year, right? Okay, whatever. But most of us celebrate those times, but why do we celebrate them? Is a birthday just, it's all about you, buddy? You're 12, this is awesome. Presents, cake, you, you, you. Or are we celebrating you being in this family is a gift from God? You having life and having a relationship with me is important to me. And so every year I'm going to remember and celebrate the fact that you were born and the fact that you came into this home. And I love you and I love the fact that God gave you to me. And do you do the same with anniversaries? Is it just an opportunity for a date night? Or are you celebrating that 22 years ago this woman made a commitment to you to covenant with you, to share the rest of her life with you, And it has been a gift from God to you that she's here. And you want to celebrate that by remembering the day that you came together in marriage. So we can do these kinds of things in our home. I'll give you a couple of other examples from our household uh, just to give you some, some other ways to think about this. Both of my kids, by the grace of God, have been given the gift of faith and have been baptized and are believers and are members of the church, what I'm super grateful for. But... One of the things we did when they got baptized was I went and got one of those round river stones, like a kind of oval-shaped stone, and I took a Dremel tool, and I just engraved the date on it. And then I gave it to them on the day that they were baptized. And I think then, and maybe now, they're like, Dad gave me this weird rock. I guess I should keep it. It's weird. But my hope was that someday down the road, they would be wrestling with their faith. They might be struggling with whether or not God is genuinely good, 
They might be suffering in some way. And that they could look at that stone and remember, no, God's been faithful. He rescued me. He redeemed me. He called me to himself. He adopted me into his family. I belong to him. And I have nothing to fear. And that that might be a reminder to them. A couple other examples. Both of our kids dealt with real weird, frustrating health issues when they were young. My son had epilepsy for a few years, and so he's having seizures all the time, and it was terrifying. Got him on medication, made the seizures stop. After a couple years, the Lord was gracious and healed him. Whatever neurological problem there was, was fixed. So we were able to wean him off the medication. He's been seizure-free ever since. Praise the Lord. My daughter, also about 9, 10 years old, she got cancer. She had a big tumor behind her eye. She had to go through 46 weeks of chemo, like 36 treatments of radiation, And after a few years, it became clear the Lord had healed her. She was cancer-free, and she has been ever since. And on my calendar are the dates of the last chemo treatment and the last seizure medication. And I don't put those on my calendar so that my wife and I can be like, oh, man, remember how sad that was? But rather to point and say, do you remember how good God was? Because it was tough, and we were terrified, and he was faithful. And so we put a stake in the ground and said, we're going to remember this, and we're going to talk about this a little bit on that day. And that's a good thing. God wants us to commemorate and remember where he's been faithful. So we should be doing this and doing it for the same purposes that God has his people do it. To remember God's faithfulness in the past so that our hope will be renewed for his faithfulness that is coming in the future. Okay, two quick final thoughts and then we'll do like a minute and a half of questions. Number one, some of you are going to have children that as they grow older are going to embrace the things of God and they will bring great joy to your heart by demonstrating genuine faith and repentance. They're going to be baptized and they'll become members of the church and be faithful and you'll rejoice. Some of your children, as they grow older, may reject your discipleship and they may stiff arm you and they say, I want nothing to do with this. Leave me alone. I hate you. I hate this church. I hate God. I hate it all. And that's going to be discouraging to you. And you're going to wrestle with feeling ashamed that you didn't do enough that you should have done more, and if you had worked harder, then they would love Jesus. Well, the truth is, all of us could work harder. There's not a single parent that's done it right. There's always something more you can do. But what you need to remember, parents, is that salvation belongs to the Lord. It was never yours to give them. Your job has always been to be faithful to what God has commanded you to do, to train them up in the way that they should go. We have hope that when they grow old, that they will not depart from it, but we have no guarantee. And so this is difficult, time-consuming, gut-wrenching work. But it's good work. And it's what your God wants from you. You trust him with the results because he's the only one that can produce them. Second, it is not necessary that you think of these three categories, this create and capture and commemorate. You don't need to think of these as somehow being equal in time or in value. Some families are going to thrive by spending a ton of time in this created moment of gathering together as a family. Other families are going to thrive and gather more faithfulness from these moments that they're capturing along the way. It's okay. What's important is that you develop a method for how you're going to make disciples in your home and that you chase after it, knowing that you're going to fail to meet the ideal that you set for yourselves, and that's okay. What's not okay is doing nothing. Your God has commanded you to make disciples of your children. You have been commanded to make disciples of one another. So this is a job that you became responsible for as a parent the moment you found out that there was a new life growing in the womb. 
And God is going to equip you for that work, and he already has, through his word and by his spirit. Let's pray, and then we'll take like a question or two. Father, we love you. We thank you for this morning. We're grateful uh, that your word is true, that you have indeed given us all that we need to be faithful. You equip us to what you've called us to. You've called us to the work of parenting. You've called us to the work of disciple-making. You've called us to care and love for one another. So we pray that you'll help us to do that. Be faithful in that. It's hard work, and we are oftentimes fearful and anxious about getting it wrong. So help us. Help us to trust you with all these things, remembering that salvation belongs to you alone. We love you, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.